Amid dramatic increases in demand for new anti-obesity medications, patients have faced barriers to access. Direct-to-consumer models offer a pathway for people to obtain these medications outside the confines of traditional clinics, often by means of telemedicine. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Ilya Golovati, an Acting Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Washington. Dr. Golovati has co-authored a perspective article about the potential benefits and risks associated with direct-to-consumer platforms for these anti-obesity medications. Dr. Golovati, could you start by providing a bit of background on this new generation of anti-obesity medications? How do they work? How does their efficacy compare with that of previous generations of anti-obesity agents? I just want to state first that the views expressed here represent my own and not the Veterans Health Administration nor the VA Puget Sound. We have a really exciting new set of medications accessible for patients for weight management. The new meds, they're GLP-1 receptor agonists. They include semaglutide, or Wigovi, trizepatide, or Zepbound, and liraglutide. And the new studies, specifically the STEPS study, came in 2021, found 15% weight efficacy versus 2.4 for placebo over 68 weeks. And for trizepatide or Zepbound in the Surmount study, found 21% weight efficacy versus 3% at 72 weeks. These are dramatic benefits in weight loss over a couple of years that we've seen with previous generations. And it's really generated a lot of excitement and really kind of groundbreaking what we can do in terms of offering our patients for weight management pharmacotherapy compared to older medications that ranged in the 3 to 7 8% range more so. But of course, with this, demand is really, really heightened in the last couple of years, and that's presented a lot of challenges in primary care. So what factors have prevented some patients who may want to take these medications from getting prescriptions from their traditional care teams? I think there's a couple different factors. So one, I just want to call out the scope of this problem, which is that for weight management, roughly from half to two-thirds of adults are overweight or obese. And with the aforementioned efficacy from the STEP and Surmount trials, it's really generated a tremendous amount of excitement. And it's also built upon a really large industry for dieting and wellness. It's ranging from some estimates 50 to $80 billion in the U.S. And in 2022, they're really championed by influencers and celebrities. The medications really essentially went viral in late 2022, just creating unprecedented demand. So if an individual is interested to discuss GLP-1 receptor agonists, they're confronted by numerous barriers in clinic, and that includes clinic-level issues, costs, and logistics. From a clinic standpoint, there's now really excessive month-long wait periods to see a primary care doc, and especially in the specialty weight management clinics. And then the second part in the clinic level is that patients with obesity increasingly felt isolated in clinic, and that includes a lot of issues around stigma and bias. It includes how patients and providers, the language used, assumptions that it's simply an activity and diet issue, and it's just a matter of willpower and weight loss, and that the presumed condition that a patient might be presenting for is just related to obesity, and adults are not really being heard or listened to. On the cost level, obviously, that's a big one, is that the monthly cost for GLP-1 receptor agonists costs over $1,000 monthly and difficult to sustain in the long term. And production delays now have led to frequent disruptions in both new starts and interrupted courses or therapy. And then the third part is the coordination issue. So the criteria is confusing and varying, especially around definitions around lifestyle programs. This is based on physical and nutrition targets that are the first step for weight management and are requirements by payers for medication. 
and what the meaning of meaningful engagement is for these lifestyle programs really varies across pairs and systems and is pretty strict sometimes. And most adults seeking weight management don't engage with lifestyle programs. And this is partly related to substantial time commitments involved in these programs and the growing shortage of affordable programs around the country. So because of these three factors, patients are increasingly looking outside the clinic walls for GLP-1 receptor agonists. So one of those opportunities outside the walls is when you write about it in your perspective article, there are three major direct-to-consumer models under which patients can access these medications. How would you describe these models? So I think first defining direct-to-consumer is helpful. I think most listeners will be familiar with direct-to-consumer as a term around direct-to-consumer advertising. That was describing pharmaceutical direct advertising to consumers in the late 90s that attention to prescribing trends and costs. And direct-to-consumer care, direct-to-consumer care models a varying definition. And the one I like is from Health Human Services, which defines the act of obtaining medical consultation and treatment outside traditional models, bypassing payers, clinicians, employers, and pharmaceuticals. And it can both be synchronous, meaning live in real time with a patient and a provider, or asynchronous, meaning text messaging sent at different times. And a lot of it is driven by convenience, reduced costs, both by monetary costs, time and also transparency, knowing what you're paying for. And sometimes trust too, as a lot of these are built off of existing brand retailers. And a lot of the care is around single conditions like sexual health, mental health, substance dependence, and acute care. And so it's becoming increasingly personalized. So specifically to direct-to-consumer models for weight management, we've identified really three major groups. One, the first group is existing lifestyle programs for weight management that have focused on nutrition and activity with peer support and coaching like Weight Watchers and Noom, that are now incorporating weight loss meds into their program. Generally, they'll have a clinic team via direct-to-consumer platform, and will try to use a consumer's existing insurance and pharmacy to secure the medication. But to note, they do have monthly payments that are most oftentimes not covered by insurance. The second major group we've identified are wellness clinics, and this is a wide range of medical spas, Botox clinics, cosmetics, that may have a provider like from plastic surgery or dermatology, that offer GLP-1 receptor agonist, often with an in-person evaluation. And then the third major group are standalone online clinics that focus their efforts generally on GLP-1 receptor agonists, often coupled with a mail-order pharmacy without insurance support. And that model really focuses on trying to offer the lowest out-of-pocket cost to access the medication. In the past month, Eli Lilly, the manufacturer of terzepatide or Zepound, launched their own website to connect consumers with their partnered online telehealth provider and mail order pharmacies. And we think that a unifying theme across all these models connect adults seeking GLP-1 receptor agonists to prescriber at a timely, low cost, either facilitating the painstaking payer review with rebates, coupons, and hopeful approval, or cheaper out-of-pocket costs. And the latter two models of the wellness clinics and standalone online clinics occasionally don't require the lifestyle change threshold if the payments are out of pocket. And to note, many of the enrollment and monthly subscription fees by these direct-to-consumer models are not covered by payers, and many don't require in-person evaluation, and a lot of coordination is through home, including labs. You've begun to answer this question with those remarks. What are the potential benefits to patients having access to these platforms? And then what are the potential risks? Is patient safety a concern here? That's a great point. So there's hope for a lot of benefits with the direct consumer model. I think some of them industry-wide and some specific to GLP-1 receptor agonists. 
Broadly, the platform direct-to-consumers offers adults to connect to care at the palm of their hands from the convenience of home and day-to-day activities, and it's likely, in theory, cheaper. Specifically for GLP-1 receptor agonists, there's kind of four different major points I would say that we've identified. One is that it may reduce stigma, given that the care platforms are curtailed to weight management. The user experience is designed, in theory, around obesity care. And staff that work on these platforms are generally trained around weight management, and the consumer potentially could avoid the potential adverse clinic experience that they felt before. Second thing is that since direct consumer platforms rely on the individual's initiation to seek care, in theory, the models may connect adults that are most likely to adhere to GLP-1 receptors over time. The market forces that promote efficient and more dependable processes are hopefully a little more robust with these platforms dedicated to GLP-1 receptor agonists. And lastly, and this is specific to the first model that we alluded to, this integrated pharmacotherapy in the lifestyle change programs, the timing of adding a GLP-1 receptor agonist to the lifestyle program may improve the engagement and retention in these programs. So during periods of high dropout traditionally at one month, three months, when we see kind of physiologic weight plateauing or regain, offering and initiating medication, especially GLP-1, may negate that process and help an individual sustain their weight loss and continue on the program. With that said, Dr. Hagen and I, my co-author, have identified four kind of major areas of concern with the GLP-1 receptor agonists. The first is that the increased access for GLP-1s for adults without established indications where there's unclear benefit and potential harm. And I think the most obvious case of this is individuals that are seeking the medication for just short-term dieting, which is not a great indication for this medication where the evidence is really chronic, potentially lifelong use. The second thing is a lack of comprehensive clinic oversight. Many patients are sicker with more comorbidities than generally the individuals that were included in the step, select, and surmount studies and potential for GLP-1 receptor agonists to impact other medications and worsen the potential side effects. So the potential for adverse events, for example, an elderly individual with existing congestive heart failure who falls following dehydration from decreased intake after they start their GLP-1, or a patient with diabetes on insulin who experiences a hypoglycemic event after initiating a GLP-1. These are all avoidable high-risk events that could have been anticipated and managed by one's primary care team. And so we argue that this drug class is riskier than other meds that have been traditionally prescribed with a direct-to-consumer care model. The third major issue is obviously issues around cost. While direct-to-consumer models improve access through theoretically more cheaply delivery, there are unique costs like the monthly subscription fees, which usually are initially lower and then escalate. And we feel that this could drive individuals to drop in and out of treatment, leading to weight cycling, which is weight gain and loss, and is associated with insulin resistance, dyslipidemia, hypertension, and potentially increased mortality. And then the fourth issue is issue around oversight and specifically compounding more recently. On the third model, I mentioned that a lot of these standalone direct-to-consumer online platforms are coupled with a mail-order pharmacy. And these pharmacies with market drivers are trying to secure the medication at lowest cost. And one of the strategies is around compounding, which is the practice of a pharmacist to combine or alter ingredients to create the medication. And this is permitted without FDA approval if a medication is on a drug shortage like semaglutide is. 
And this trend has already prompted the FDA in the last year to announce concerns over adverse events related to compound pharmacy formulations for the salt formulation of semaglutide, which is a formulation used just in studies and is not approved for clinical use. And I think that speaks to more the underlying issue of who's overseeing these direct-to-consumer prescribers and models. Are they suppliers? Is it the FDA Many of the direct-to-consumer platforms claim they are also a registry connecting prescribers to patients and not prescribers themselves. So is that under the jurisdiction of U.S. Health Human Services, state medical boards? Which agency has jurisdiction is unclear in this setting. Finally, in a related perspective article, Gortmaker and colleagues discuss approaches to preventing obesity in the first place, particularly in children. So how do you think these new anti-obesity medications and broader public health strategies could be used in tandem to address the high rates of obesity that we see in the United States. Thanks for raising this critical point. And I think that really raises the issue that the focus has to be across the care continuum for obesity, focusing from prevention to treatment and not just laying all our eggs in the basket around how do we cover these pharmacotherapy. I would call as a internal medicine and adult medicine provider, that's from my focus, a couple of areas to target. One would be around education, targeting clinicians around being more comfortable and aware with weight management, acknowledging biases, and considering approaches weight neutral as well. Earlier in the care cascade for adults with overweight or class one obesity, potentially without other obesity-related comorbidities like metabolic healthy obesity? And is there other strategies more weight neutral to offer them? I would also offer more focus on coverage for expansion for the menu of options that we have for less intensive weight neutral approaches for weight management that aren't as intensive as the lifestyle programs, for example, medically nutritionist and movement and other community-based activity programs. And then I think they're acknowledging that all these efforts don't exist in a vacuum and really targeting community and society level interventions, things around green spaces, food deserts, as our colleagues in the perspective in this journal raise encouraging expansion of special supplemental nutrition program for women, infant, and children, school meal programs, and taxes on sugar, sweet, and beverages have showed some promise. And I'd also add incentives towards healthy foods and restricting advertising of unhealthy foods. All these have a lot of carryover effect. At the community and household level, they have spillover effect. And as the perspective piece talks about, it has potential cost-saving measures from a preventative approach that could help offer support in the management downstream. Currently in Congress, there's the Treat and Reduce Obesity Act which really focuses on expanding lifestyle change program and anti-obesity med coverage. And I would offer potentially offerings more support on the preventative side. And if it frees up some funding, it could offer backbone support to help with the coverage of the strategies that we use for weight management. One of the strategies we offer in our perspective is to provide a certification program for monitoring these direct-to-consumer models and incentivizing patient-centered outcomes to work towards standardizing the guideline-based care for these direct-to-consumer models. And that would take some backbone support and some of the potential funding from that could support something like that. Similar to the National Diabetes Prevention Program, their diabetes recognition program that stemmed from the Diabetes Prevention Act of 2009. Thank you, Dr. Golovati.